Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This time on the podcast, I have Duke Hartman. Duke is the Chief Operating Officer for High Noon Entertainment in Denver, Colorado. High Noon Entertainment produces content such as Cake Boss, Aisha's Home Kitchen, Fixer Upper, Extreme Water Parks, Unwrapped, the list goes on, and you should definitely check out their website at highnoontv.com to see more of their programming. Uh, Duke started off studying documentary film at Ohio University. Uh, He ended up coming out to Denver, working at a TV station, uh, getting into unscripted programming in a way that uh, he will describe in this podcast. I'm not going to go into it right now. Uh, He's heavily involved with the Colorado Ballet. Um, Really great conversation. He talks about what it takes to make it in the industry and the kind of steps he took uh, in order to build the kind of company that he is now running. So enjoy. Hey, how's it going, Duke? (laughs) Going well. (laughs) Very good. Uh, First of all, I wanted to once again thank you for letting me be here for eight weeks and getting to learn everything that I've learned so far. It really has been an amazingly eye-opening experience. Even if I don't end up doing something in this particular genre of filmmaking, it Mm -hmm. has been pretty wild to go out, shoot some pilots, talk to your team, uh, and that kind of stuff. Uh, One thing that I really wanted to ask you about is High Noon, the name itself. Mm -hmm. I walk in the front door, I see the sign, I see the poster of Gary Cooper. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of Westerns. Do you come from a fan of like a background rather of like loving Westerns or did it happen by accident? Like how did you actually come up with the name? Well, oddly enough, um, we landed our first gig. Um, uh, Me and my three partners in those days uh, were all laid off from a... uh, uh, network at Liberty Media all at the same time, and we had 10 weeks' uh, notice. Um, and That's generous. Yeah, it was, it was really amazing. And plus, they were flying us around and everything else. And uh, so we reached out to our friends at Discovery and said, uh, well, we're going to go off and form our own business. Um, the network's shutting down. Um, we're going back to what we were doing prior to uh, joining this Liberty Media network. And they said, well, get out here. We've got 50 one-hour shows, and we have nobody to produce them. So we all got on a plane, went out, had meetings in Bethesda with uh, the Discovery folks, um, and uh, came back to Denver and developed the concept that they had. And what they wanted was a studio-based home improvement show, um, taught by novices, not by experts, but novices who explored and discovered how to do home improvement projects Uh, and the viewer would learn as they learned. Um, So we got our first gig, um, and we started uh, in January of uh, 1997. We had to do the development. We went back to them with budgets and everything, but we got the green light for it. And um, so several months in, um, it became time to uh, uh, brand the... uh, the, the show, um, and we needed a production company name, and we knew that the show uh, aired at noon on uh, TLC. And so that's where we came up with the notion of high noon. Uh, none of us were from the West. We were all transplants, so we had some fascination uh, with it. I'm from Baltimore, Jim's from St. Louis, Sonny's from Louisville, and Chris Wheeler, who was the fourth partner back then, was from uh, Fort Wayne. So. Um, we were in a Comcast facility on Dry Creek Road, and that's when we came up with uh, High Noon as, uh, as the name. So you didn't even have a company when you agreed to do this? Yes, yes. So, uh, And it may have been 
don't know if it was the contracts is where we really had to, I remember it was, a, we had to hurry up and come up with a name, and maybe that was maybe in February or March when we were, uh, you know, at the contract phase. Uh, but uh, we sat around a table and uh, we wanted to do something Western, and Jim came up with High Noon and was like, oh yeah, we like that. And you're in the Mile High City. And you bet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's mean, a couple different layers just, there, right? Yes, the, it, it was. And, uh, you know, being uh, documentary people, we also had an interest in, uh, you know, exploring Western themes and stuff. Uh, um, and uh, so that all kind of tied into the High Noon as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I was on a pilot um, a couple weeks ago, and the camera operators that I was talking to both told me they came from news. Mm-hmm. What is it about unscripted television or documentary work that makes you, um, or, or coming from a news background, makes you suited to this kind of actual programming? I mean, I, I'm noticing that it's not necessarily about framing a shot or building a shot or building an image. It's just about getting as much information as I can as quickly as possible. I mean, these guys are athletic. Mm -hmm. Like on set, they were ducking down, diving behind things, signaling to people, grabbing things, here, move that incredibly fast-paced. Is it the same skill set you have from doing the news? I mean, like you get it on location, yes. you just have to do the same exact thing? Yes. I mean, and news is a great training ground, whether news is uh, of interest to you or not. Early on in your career, it's a wonderful place to, uh, to work. Um, um, my path was as a director. Well, in uh, a television station, you're directing every day, and you may be mul directing multiple shows uh, uh, a day. So you get a lot of experience really fast. And we found the, the same uh, with uh, the photography side uh, of news. My three other partners were all news photographers, and Chris Wheeler was the NPPA uh, Photographer of the Year. And, 1988. I mean, he beat out the 60 Minutes folks and all of that oh, wow. uh, as the the best photographer you know in the country. And um, so, with photographers that are good at news, um, are good storytellers typically. They're lean. They're efficient. They're great at composition. But the ones we've hired over the years are also awesome at lighting. I mean, lighting is. Uh, is so important to what we do and, and how we uh, uh, tell our stories um, that uh, we just find that kind of efficiency there. The production shooters do well, but they need a much bigger crew. They need grip trucks on everything. They need right, uh, right, right. lots of layers, and that's not, um, not what we do. And it, it's certainly not what um, our evolution was. So and, did, you actually, did you study journalism? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I minored in journalism. Yeah. Okay, and you majored in, in majored in television, uh, 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 communication arts as an undergrad, and then when I went to Ohio University for grad school, I was both in the radio, TV side, working at WOUB, and then in the film school side as well. So, did you envision a career in journalism? Is that what you, I mean, uh, no. in news, rather? No, no, but what I did knew... You, what did you I, want to be when you grew up? Well, I knew I wanted to work in a television station, so, uh, you know, that starts to associate you pretty well with news. And, and uh, getting out, I, I wanted to get that first gig, and knowing when I got the first gig, I'd be able to kind of check out the landscape and see what the opportunities were. When I worked at WOUB, I was as a, as a producer, director, writer. Um, uh, for um, I did an internship there and uh, worked on two different shows. Uh, um, one was Almanac and 
I forget what the other was, but I did a couple documentaries uh, and everything. What was interesting with that was working for the television station, and um, they were picking up the tab for everything. So film stock, all of that. I didn't have to do any of that, nice. even though I got the the film the, the film school. You know, students were doing the shooting and everything. But uh, uh, not only did I not have to hit those costs, but then I also had a place to exhibit it as well. Okay, you know, which was very cool. So, how long were you in news before you got let go from um, this uh, particular company? Yeah. So my first job, I, I sent out 350 resumes. I hand typed oh, every many? 350. I hand typed every cover letter, um, and then had gone to a printer to get my resume printed. And I did that um, the six months that I was um, uh, studying at OU, and my class work was done, but I was prepping for my oral defense and all that kind of stuff uh, uh, to get my master's uh, MA. Um, and so I sent those out to every television station, I think north of like Georgia and um, east of the Mississippi, and I couldn't get uh, a job anywhere. Um, so I finally uh, got my degree and uh, decided to come out and visit a friend up in Nederland. Um, and I came out to Colorado. Is that a suburb of uh, Denver? Yeah, it's up above, uh, up above Boulder. Okay. Um, uh, it was uh, quite the place in the 70s. That's where Caribou Ranch, the recording studio is, and everything it was pretty, pretty famous okay. uh, in the day. Um, but I sent my uh, resume out to all the Denver stations, and all of a sudden, all those stations wanted to interview when I couldn't get but like one or two interviews uh, back east. And it was for, um, uh, they were hiring uh, for summer relief. Uh, in the summers, they would, um, the engineers were all union at the television stations. They ran the studio cameras, did all the floor directing, and they would hire young people to, uh, to just fill in for uh, six or uh, six or twelve week uh, period. Um, and so I landed that job, and that got me into a television station. And the main product, of course, in those days was the news. So mm -hmm. I worked my way up from being a floor director to switching air. And about a year and a half in, I started directing news, um, weekend news, and I did that for several years. Um, directing news was, um, was good. I mean, it made me uh, think fast. It, made, it teaches you to be decisive. It's a constant juggling but not terribly creative, or, or I didn't feel it was very creative. Uh, it was aggravating that, you know, during a live newscast, everything uh, that, you know, somebody didn't do well ended up in your lap, chirons that aren't, you know, spelled correctly. Mm -hmm. Plus there's the havoc of a control room of constantly dumping stories and live feeds falling apart and all that kind of stuff. That was a good skill set and everything um, for me, but really not my cup of tea. And at the end of 1979, um, Channel 9, KUSA TV, um, created a, a television production company. They used to have a film production company, and they converted it to a video production company called Image 9. And uh, I got hired on uh, as a producer-director um, uh, with them, and that, was, that ended up then being another 14 years, and that was all commercial work, client work, and that's where I met, you know, Jim and Sonny. They, they so, had, more creativity. 
far more. You can creativity. make decisions. You can decide. It was, yeah, it was you and your clients. It's mm -hmm. uh, you know the clients can they come in with their own budgets. I didn't have to go to the station for a budget or anything. The ad agency wants to do this, this, and this. They have storyboards, and you you got down to business as far as how you shoot it, how you cast it. You got to work with actors. For me, it was I'd learned multi-camera pretty much on the news side, but single camera was fascinating to me. I mean, and to, to learn how to do that, how to match action, how to match cuts, how to work with, uh, work with talent, uh, how to work with all the different uh, uh, departments on a shoot and everything. So that was exciting for me. And that was where I, where I really saw a craft that I wanted to learn and I wanted to get really good at. So, so you're learning, you learn more doing probably oh, yeah. than you did Oh yeah, yeah. School. Oh yeah, yeah. But school was great. I mean, that that that's where the interest came from. That's where uh, the passion, you know, came from. But I didn't come out of school going, I'm going to be a this. I mean, I, I got that first job. I found what those opportunities were, and the the path that I was really good at was directing. So. Uh, so it's not as if I mean, a lot of times this is something I hear all the time, or mm -hmm. I heard when I was an undergrad. Find your passion. Right. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like you just decided I want to work in this medium. Mm -hmm. That's the important thing. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I'll see what happens. Yeah. Is it more open-ended when you jumped into it? Yeah. I mean, there there was a little bit a little bit of that. Um, you know, I had some directing experience, but not a ton of directing experience. I had some writing. I had some producing experience, but. You know, when you go out and get that first job, no matter how many degrees you have, it's always going to be an entry-level job. I mean, that's all you're going to be able to do um, uh, on a professional level. So I went into the entry-level job, which was a floor director. You know, we used to, you know, during all the newscasts, you would cue the talent between the cameras, and you were working the light board, and you were... In those days, we had camera cards that you were constantly, you know, mm -hmm. moving off of easels and things like that. And um, it was exciting. I mean, putting on that headset for the first time, trying to figure out what on earth is everybody talking about, and all of that. It was like this is cool, and this is this is what I wanted to do, and this is what I was excited about doing. And I took it really seriously. Um, you know, not that I was saving the world, but I mean, I was serious about. Uh, this is cool, and and I want to advance, and I want to I want to do more in this, and I want to find my way, and finding my way had a lot to do with what the opportunities are, you know, and directing is really where I mean that clicked in pretty much right away. So, so when it came to building the company that is High Noon Entertainment, mm -hmm. it was just four of you to start off. Yes. Were you just doing every single job, the four of you, or mm -hmm. did you immediately start trying to find other people to kind of delegate to? No, we were all, I mean, with three photographers and a director, you were in pretty good shape as far as, you know, the first, certainly that first, uh, that first series that we did, the 51 Hours for uh, Discovery, was a studio-based show. So that's mm -hmm. what we all did, and, you know, Sunday was floor directing, and Jim was producing, and... Uh, uh, Chris and Mike Watson were running cameras. I mean, it was um, it was kind of all hands on deck. We were, you know, brought in more producers and editors and things like that. But um, for many, many years, uh, I mean, Sonny and I directed probably everything for the first twelve years or so Man. of the company. So, uh, so I mean, we were we were hopping. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was. You know, but it was a different kind of television in those days, um, which kind of circles back to the whole news thing. When we started the company, most of the television was magazine style. 
on television. Can you explain that to me? Sarah talked to me briefly about how it's like, okay, you have just one little feature and then it's Mm -hmm. done. And then you move to another little feature and then it's complete. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of our our shows were... um, um, you know, the economics of it is you're going to fly to Indianapolis um, and uh, it's going to be a five-day trip and you're going to bring home four stories, um, four, five, six-minute stories. Um, you know, we're casting them, we're lining them all up and everything, but you would go out and batch shoot um, this. So it would be like 60 minutes. I mean, between every commercial break was a segment and that was its own story then just about all those shows had hosts. And so you would shoot host wraps, uh, um, or you'd go out and, uh, and uh, the host would do the introductions and the tags and the tosses and the teases um, you know, for each of those segments for the show, and you could probably batch those as well. So it was magazine work. Um, mm-hmm. It uh, was probably 90% of the shows we were doing. So that allowed us to hire people out of TV stations. I mean, you know, the reporters uh, at the local stations had, you know, done their 15 years of standing out and, you know, doing weather shots and, you know, in front of uh, murder scenes and all that. And after 15 years of that, they're a little weary of all that. And they, they're they interested in storytelling. And they're really good writers. They're very efficient. They're very lean. They just don't know entertainment, and they certainly don't know client work. You know, all of our work is client work. So the first 10 years of the company, it was a lot of alumni, uh, folks that had come out of, uh, you know, news departments around the around the country. So if you had a magazine era yes. of the company, what did yes. that kind of morph into? I mean, how did you respond to changing landscape of TV? Well, how, how did TV change? Well, TV really... Um, I mean, today's television is far more complicated, you know, with an A story and a B story and a C story that you got to inter- intertwine, uh, which is what most of our programming is today. Um, back in those days, I mean, it was, it was segments. So somewhere in this, the, the taste of uh, the viewer had changed, and um, so the, the types of shows that we were doing was changing as well. Uh, when you're talking about these kind of 30-minute field-based shows, you know, at the same time we had the Los Angeles office, that was uh, really thriving. We were doing a lot of kind of house reality shows. We were doing, you know, some shiny floor um, shows. We were doing some Can game you explain shows. shiny floor show? Shiny floor is, <laughs> is like dancing with the stars. The, those, those event ones, those big stage shows, they're usually shot on, you know, the uh, uh, three foot by three foot Roscoe tiles right you shine up and everything okay so that's that's where the slang of uh, a shiny floor um, um, comes from but that's a genre a genre pretty specific to LA I mean that's the LA office was busy doing that kind of stuff game shows that's not something you necessarily do out of Denver that expertise is in Los Angeles Um, you can import a bunch of people and shoot it in Denver and we did that Mm -hmm. uh, several times but most of that stuff we do out there and then we were also doing some of those house reality shows as well, you know, the, you know, tons of cameras and, you know, locking folks together for several weeks and seeing how they unfold and stuff. So, Can you give some examples of uh, some of that programming? Well, Tough Love on VH1, we did uh, six seasons of, um, and that was... Uh, 
Um, that was a matchmaker that we found, uh, Steve Ward and his mom out of Philadelphia. And, uh, and uh, the tough love concept was about uh, women that had not, maybe eight women uh, who had really not had much uh, success with dating or, or settling down and he would do this boot camp for two weeks and they'd all be locked into a house and there'd be a lot of different uh, exercises they'd go through and conflict and all that all that mm -hmm. stuff. whole different kind of thing than what we do uh, at the moment. But, but that was all part of this this mix that was going on as magazine was kind of kind of uh, going away. It wasn't quite as sophisticated. Um, we did Unwrapped for 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a, a show about, uh, um, you know, where your favorite snacks come from and visiting the factory and the history behind those. And Mark Summers was the host, and we shot that in a big cafe. How'd you get a hold of him? Cafe. Um, the network came up with him. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we started shooting in uh, 2000 with Mark, and he was awesome, you know, and we all knew him from Double Dare and everything. So. I, I waited on him at a restaurant in Philadelphia oh, a okay. couple of times. Yeah, yeah. And one of my mentors was the set designer for Double Dare. Oh, wow. So it's kind of small, funny, that connection. Small world, Every yeah. time I've, I've run into Mark Summers, he's been the friendliest guy. He's, <laughs> he's like, incredibly generous. He's lovely, and we still stay in touch uh, and everything. In fact, with Trading Spaces coming back on TLC, um, a month or two ago, there was uh, the notion of, well, if that's coming back, why can't Unwrap come back? Uh, you know, and so we had some discussions, and of course, Mark would totally be game, and High Noon would certainly be game if that uh, uh, ever came back again. So you're, you're running things from Denver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what, are, what are the uh, benefits of having your office in Denver, but you're doing programming like all over the place? Like you're shooting a mm -hmm. show in Pittsburgh right now, you've got shows in California, you've got shows in Texas, you've got mm -hmm. shows... In South America for the water park show, right? I mean, you're yeah. doing you're filming all over the world. What what is it about Denver that makes us a good place to have your company based? Well, we um, we have a great team here. Um, being in the middle of Denver, you got to kind of grow your own and stuff. So a lot of people have uh, have you know come up through the ranks here. A lot of them are employees that have been with us a long time. I mean, Matt Walker is one of our very best executive producers, and he started as an intern, you know, 20 years oh, yeah? ago. And he just worked his way up, as did, you know, Glenna and Sarah, and uh, uh, everybody did that. That's part of, you know, the Denver thing is, uh, is um, it's a pretty, pretty tight group. Um, you know, there's uh, expertise that we have to bring in from time to time. Um, uh, Scott Feely, uh, mm -hmm. who is running all of it, uh, all the programming at this point, you know, we brought in from Los Angeles. You know, we knew he was a Colorado guy, and he'd been out there seven, eight, nine years doing American Choppers and stuff, and uh, was interested in coming back uh, um, to Denver. And, uh, you know, was one of the key people that uh, helped us make that transition from magazine um, uh, shows to these more complicated uh, uh, shows that we're producing right now. But D Denver never really worked against us. Uh, um, you know, again, we had the Los Angeles office for things that had to be done in, in L.A. Uh, you know, there's some categories you just can't do very well here, but um, it's been, been great. We've never really been penalized uh, uh, by it. Maybe early on... Um, you know, uh, there 
was some discounting, you know, as far as what the rates were and what people were getting paid, you know, in Denver versus uh, New York and L.A. I don't know that that uh, exists anymore. Um, um, having been in this for 20 years now, we, we you know, are hiring people from all over um, and, you know, pay uh, accordingly. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, no, we've just been fortunate. Uh, and they really, just haven't really had prolific. to move. Yes, yes, yes. And we all are transplants here, and we all came to Colorado because this is where we wanted to be. It's, a, it's an amazing, amazing place. And I don't think any of us are going to leave. Right. So. How do you find, let me see the best way to actually ask this question, what is the key to having a compelling, unscripted, television show. Is there one common denominator for all these various different genres you're working yeah. in within the unscripted? Like, what, what do you look yeah. for as far as... It's story. Just plain old story. You know, it's got to have a story to it. It's got to have a good story to it. It's got to have a hook. You know, you got to get... You know, we're dealing with commercials. You know, you got to get them hooked so they'll stay, you know, through three and a half minutes of commercials. Um, uh, you got to make it entertaining. You got to be in tune with what the audience wants and what today's TV is. You can't hold on to that old stuff. You've got to evolve um, with that. Um, each episode, you get one crack at it. So it's like, how do I make this the very best? So much of this is uh, for cable. Cable will run these episodes for ten years. So you know, you really, you really got to get it, uh, get it right. The other thing is we're user-friendly. I mean, we just always have been, um, we respect our clients, our clients um, respect us, we do what we say we're going to do, and we try to put the drama on the screen and spare the network and spare the staff and spare everybody of, uh, of drama, you know. You make a good atmosphere, uh, you bring good pros into work, and uh, it's a nurturing atmosphere, and uh, everybody just works their tails off uh, to make the best shows they can. I have been struck in my time here by the culture mm -hmm. of this company, and I have to say that I've never worked with a more friendly and supportive group of people. Every time I meet someone, like... Yeah, they're, they're just willing to help me. Mm -hmm. I'm the intern. I'm the guy in the, this little cubicle over here. But I ask, I say, excuse me, and ask one question, and they will stop what they're doing mm -hmm. and take 20 minutes to answer it mm -hmm. and then get back to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, uh, how do you build a company that has that kind of culture? Because I've worked places where it is just, you're right. getting beaten down, it's right. aggressive, there's conflict constantly, you feel like you're mm -hmm. on the defensive all the time, mm -hmm. you feel like you have to fight back, yep. and it's uncomfortable. But here, yeah. you're managing to crank out just hours and hours and hours of, of compelling content without what seems like this whip yeah. kind of slave driver aggression. Like, how, how do you do that? Well, it, it's interesting because it doesn't just happen, you have to make it happen. I mean, you have to say it's important, and then you have to stay with it. Um, and when you get a volatile personality or two in, the, in your midst, then when their contract is up, if, if they don't get it and uh, it's too disruptive for what, uh, what you get out of them, you send them away. Um, so we all came out of newsrooms, so I mean, we kind of know some of that 
that chaos and everything, but I, I think we always kind of wanted to do it in a more kinder, uh, gentler way. Um, and you know, we've become you know pretty legendary for that. I mean, that's one of that's one of the things High Noon is uh, is known for. You know, in addition to being just great producers who do what they say they're going to do. You know. Mm-hmm. You know, and we never cheat the screen. I mean, the money that's supposed to go up on the screen, we make sure it goes on the screen. So all of our clients over the years have always appreciated that as well, that they feel like they get their money's worth, uh, um, you know, and, and good hit shows. So, But you create the environment. So you have, I mean, it must be really helpful to have a sort of, I mean, I mean correct me if I'm wrong here, but this company is, is based largely, other than the administrative side, on it's contract based mm-hmm. so you you mm-hmm. sign a contract for like one season of work or mm-hmm. something like that so yeah you have people who have been here for a really long time mm-hmm. but they're not technically permanent employees mm-hmm. but you just keep bringing them back because they're good to work with is that kind of how you do it like how do you mean yeah them? yeah but i mean they're also treated like employees i mean they have you know medical insurance and 401k and vacation and pto and uh you know, we're like a real company. We do, you know, withholdings and, you know, all the, the tax stuff and everything. Uh, we need them as much as they need us. So uh, the ones that are really good and the ones that are always evolving, you know, before their contract's up, you know, we're in the back here, you know, shifting them over here to do this one and can they do that and do they want to do they want to stay on the show because it's renewing again or is that too easy and they want to go off and do you know start up a new show where there's a lot of chaos and everything so there's a lot of you know uh, if they're performing and performing well it's very much in our interest to keep them going so so some of these people have been here 15 20 years and some of them have been pretty seamless okay you know so have you had to fire anybody Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's been... I mean, some people go psycho on you and think, you know, they're God's gift to whatever and uh, that you can't do it without them and stuff like that. That would be kind of more in the early days. Um, um, but, yeah, you always, you're always kind of dealing with that, that stuff. I, I, you know, and there's... In television, you can't get complacent, you know, and there is... You know, I mean, editing is certainly, you know, people that go into a dark room and work hard every day and get these notes back from the network that totally destroy, you know, the direction that they're going and they now have to go over there and then they walk out the room and it looks like everybody's having a party. You know, I mean, there can be an attitude built uh, over years and stuff. Uh, um, You know, and that's the stuff you you try to course correct and when it won't course correct, then you you part ways on it. I am unbelievably impressed with how these editors are able to manage the shooting ratio. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between unscripted versus scripted and the back end of post-production? Mm-hmm. Because that, to me, is just... I, I Tracy gave me a little homework assignment just to see... so I could see what it was like okay. to edit act one of a show. Okay. And it took me five hours... To get a super rough, um, when I say rough, I mean like jagged rough mm. cut of introducing one room in a house that was going to get renovated. Okay. And I'm not the worst editor, mm-hmm. I didn't think, yeah. until I got a yeah. hold of this and just went, my God, how do you do that? Yeah. It's, it's like, so, so how do you structure, I mean, for whoever listens to this, just to kind of get an idea of the amount of labor it takes to get, hey, we've got all this raw footage. Mm-hmm. How do we get that to a twenty-minute show? I mean, yeah. how do you how do you make that happen? 
So that's all part of the evolution as well. So back in our first 10 years of magazine work, that was primarily a single camera that was going out and shooting. Um, I mean, there was a producer and there was a sound person. They would go out and do stories. And, you know, the, the uh, photographer was doing the lighting of the different rooms and things, things like that. But the media was pretty much, you know, a single camera. Maybe as it got a little more sophisticated, you might have an A and a B camera on the magazine shows. I mean, we had multi-camera shows as well where you got five cameras and they're all being isolated uh, as well as a line switch and everything. And that seemed to have a, a fair amount of media to, to slog through, uh, but you would have a line cut as a reference uh, um, to that. As the evolution has uh, now gone, you know, this last 10 years, you know, you don't shoot anything with a single camera anymore. I mean, it seems like everything has an A and a B camera, if not an A, B, and a C camera, and then it's GoPros, and it's, uh, you know, drones, uh, you know, jibs, all that kind of stuff. So it's uh, an ungodly amount of media that comes back to us. And, you know, some of it, our, our folks back in Master Control and stuff, I mean, GoPros are a blessing and a curse. I mean, you certainly can capture some things with GoPros, but oftentimes you've got a camera set up for eight hours watching a door and nobody ever comes through the door. You know, so do you digitize that? Do you screen that? You know, what do you do uh, with that? And that's been a struggle over the years. Um, that, uh, so that it starts with master control. Yeah, everything comes in and gets ingested there. Um, uh, probably our first 10 years we didn't have assistant editors. Uh, well, now assistant editors are a huge part of what's going on because they're going to take all that footage and they're going to start grouping it together so that the uh, editor, when they finally get their hands on it, at least the footage is organized and whatever method you know that particular show might want that to be uh, to be organized. Um, so there's there's layers of people then we've added too to be able to uh, to do it, and we've also um, increase the amount of edit time for a show. I mean, a half hour in our first 10 years would have been 10, maybe 12 uh, edit days, um, offline edit days uh, to tell a story. Now, I don't think we do anything, any half hours that aren't at least 25 days, if not, if not 30 days. And back in the old days, you know, it would be, you know, here's your rough cut. You'd get story notes from the, uh, from the network, and uh, and then, um, you know, you make those and finish and deliver the the, the master. Um, you know, now the, you know, there's one or two rough cuts. You know, then there's a fine cut, and then there's a lock cut. You know, uh, all of that before it goes uh, uh, to finishing. So. There's a lot more, a lot more involved, but the stakes are higher. The you know the TV audience is a lot more sophisticated now, and you gotta, you gotta hit that that storytelling, you know, and then you gotta, you know, create it in such a way that you can get them through the commercial breaks and everything with the hooks. So you've got, it's not just one editor. You've got mm -hmm. the you've got master control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is the first pass and then you've got assistant editors who are just grouping things yep. and then you have a writer who comes in and does a string out and the string out is, is just the basic structure of what they think the story should be mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. yeah and then after the writer you get an editor mm -hmm. and then you have like the then you have like the finishing mm -hmm. technicians mm -hmm. that has been so fascinating to me yeah to watch someone like Jim Boardman mm -hmm. edit sound yeah where he he's doing 
does he do every show? Does he mm -hmm. do sound for every single show? Yeah. And he has for just about all 20 years. We didn't bring him on staff until we moved into this building about six years ago, but he, he worked at the Comcast facility uh, uh, and, and always did, did all of our shows. So I mean, there was a second one of him at one point, you know, when we were doing 400 shows a year. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had uh, you know, multiple um, sweetening rooms running and stuff. But no, it's, um, it's quite, I mean, the editing process is pretty, pretty amazing. I, I'm, always, I'm always amazed with the offline editors who just pour their heart and soul you know, into you know, the first two weeks of an, of an edit, two and a half weeks of an edit, and especially on a startup, a new, new series, and then we send it off to the network and, you know, they get 15 pages of notes back that say no 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 don't do that why do you pick that music let's move this over here let's change this structure and they they mentally somewhere or other you know along with their producer shift and start heading down this path that goes on for you know a couple weeks and stuff but at some point that executive has to show it to their boss mm -hmm. and sometimes their boss goes oh no no that's not what the show is the show is over here which is where we started. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just kind of the aggravation of startup. You know, those first five, six episodes of a series, uh, it's it's hard to get everybody on the same page. Sure. Well, what's yeah. the difference between online and offline for our listeners? So offline's all just story. Um, it's laying out the story. It's integrating the story. Um, uh, you know, as as you get further down, then you're starting to kind of start cutting it to clock. You know, the networks all have a clock that you have to hit as far as where the commercial breaks go mm -hmm. and and all of that. Um, so, you know, they're starting with a pretty fat cut, you know, at first. Um, and then over the course of four weeks, five weeks before it's going to go to, to finishing, they have fully refined that. They They have got all their b-roll shots in they've got it packaged all the way up to the commercial breaks they've you know produced what the teases are going to be they're doing all the bumps they're also doing you know all the rough music i mean they're the editors pulling all the music um, um, they're working with the natural sound they're doing all of that and when it's done and it's going back and forth with the network and everybody's on the same page then that's when we call it a lock cut and usually that was in low resolution. Uh, we, we bought a, a bunch more storage and we're starting to be able to do some shows in offline in full resolution. Um, Huge but, difference, yeah, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and uh, um, so then uh, once it is locked, and I mean locked, uh, you know, they've spell checked the credits, uh, you know, everything, then it goes into finishing, um, and that's where we really get down to, you know, doing the compositing, any green screen compositing, the blurring, um, all the color correction is being done. We're not asking our story editors to be technicians. We're not asking them to know how to color correct. We're not asking them to match uh, scene to scene. It's story, 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 and then when it goes into finishing is where you know, they'll start um, going, doing color correction shot by shot uh, uh, and then doing any visual effects, uh, those kinds of things, and then doing everything in, in high res and hitting all the network specifications. And there's pages, so there's tech specs that the networks want you to hit, and every network is, uh, is different. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, pictures being done, then uh, uh, Jim Boardman's doing you know, the audio side. Okay. You know, and he's working 
um, you know, he's dealing with natural sound. Here's the, the Chicago in the background with Lake Michigan in the foreground. And um, somebody is next to him jabbering and cars are passing and all of that. And there's a really loud bird chirping. Yes. I saw him remove just the sound of a bird chirping. Yes, yes. From, mm -hmm. a, from an uh, on-the-fly interview. And it, it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. It really is. It's yeah. amazing. But he'll, he'll make all that go away and he'll have the water in the foreground and the traffic noise he wants and all that. It's, uh, and, and then there's a magic with sweetening and I, I don't really know what it is, but just that, you, that music can be where you want it to be and that voice punches through it all the time mm -hmm. on every word. Uh, that, that never happens coming out of an editing room. Uh, you know. Um, it, it, it's really a sweetening, uh, sweetening trick that all those elements are there, but you can hear them all, and they're not fighting each other. You were telling me about the uh, difference between uh, manipulating the gain specifically mm -hmm. or manipulating one frequency within the volume. So mm -hmm. there's one thing he showed me where if you pull out the frequency from a music bed that the person's voice is in, you don't actually have to drop the volume of the music. Oh, but since okay. you're pulling down the frequency of the voice from the music, you can hear the voice even though the music is playing over it. And that's a subtlety that I'd never actually considered. I figured, oh, you have to drop the music and then raise. It's like, no, no, you can actually oh, yeah. find the wavelengths. They notch it. And, yeah. That's been yeah. just really, really cool to watch. Yeah. it's. I mean, there's just a lot of tricks that they can do. And he can notch out, you know, air conditioning noise and things like that. It is reality that we're doing. So there's a run and gun mm -hmm component to it and you can bust for the airplane going over but you know eventually you just got to get on with with uh, shooting and so in, in uh, Sweden he can take care of a lot of uh, fixes and just like uh, with picture we do the do the same thing uh, I mean you're going from different colors of uh, light and everything and yet that turquoise shirt needs to be turquoise in every one of those shots and mm -hmm. it can't be blue in this shot and it can't be green in that shot uh, uh, less well, you know, the faces that are so crucial. At what point did you establish a development team for the company? Because I noticed that that's one chunk of the office I haven't spent a lot of time in, mm -hmm. but I've seen you've got a number of desks over there that are just working on development. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that that would be in the second 10 years. So, the so first, after the magazine period? Yes, yes. So in the early years, um, I think we were probably getting 50% of our work from the networks. They would go to their programming meeting and uh, um, then the phone would ring and say, hey, we were in our programming meeting today and um, we were talking about wanting a show on this and we think High Noon would be the perfect uh, folks to do that. Can you guys go develop that concept and come back to us with it? So. Um, in those days, um, you know, half the work came from the network, the other half was us pitching them concepts, you know, how about a show about, you know, uh, uh, secret gardens, we'll go to all the different cities and we'll find these hidden gardens, uh, um, and, uh, you know, we'll do a show on that. We had a show called If Walls Could Talk, which ran for nine years, and it was amazing discoveries people have uh, found inside their houses they were doing renovations from cannonballs you know from the revolutionary war to all sorts of things like that those were concepts and that's how we uh, uh, did it in those days it was also volume um, um, the networks were all firing up I mean we were at 
at the right place at the right time. They all need to program, and they need a lot of programming. Some some of those years, we were making 400, 450 shows a year we were delivering. Um, and what year was this? Like what? Well, it, that would have been like, um, I mean... 2000 to 2008, maybe. Is where so this we is were. like after Survivor became huge. Suddenly networks want as much unscripted programming as possible. Is that no, kind of how it works? No, I mean, it was, you know, we got in it in 97. Um, and that's when all this whole cable thing was finally breaking loose. Uh, you know, you always heard that there were going to be... Uh, um, um, you know, 300 channels and stuff, but the set-top boxes were still analog. And, you know, in the late 90s is when the digital set-top boxes came out and all of a sudden you could have 300 channels. So channels were launching left and right, and uh, they all needed programming, and we, we were there to do that. So, so the first 10 years was kind of like that. Um, the evolution of development then kind of came from it getting television getting more sophisticated, it getting more competitive. Uh, networks weren't really handing off programming so much uh, anymore. They were looking to the producers to go out and find talent, find concepts to come back and um, and present to them. So that's what when we started. Um, uh, our Los Angeles office was pretty big in development. Uh, uh, we actually started it as a development office uh, out there probably around 08 or so um, uh, to be able to, to work with the networks and be pitching uh, with the networks, have face-to-face -face meetings with uh, executives um, and really find out what they were looking for, you know, where, where the holes in their schedule um, were. Um, so we started with that, development got uh, a little bit bigger over the years as we evolved to the point now that we've got a dozen people in development, uh, six of them just doing casting uh, every day. They come to work just to cast, to go find the next uh, uh, you know, Chip and Joanna or the next Buddy Velastro or the next uh, Bristol and Aubrey you know, for, for fixing Are they rubber. just scouring the internet They're and YouTube scouring. and just trying to find yep. anything? Yep. Every, everything. So what's happened now is it's kind of flipped. Um, um, the networks aren't doing a ton of development. I mean, they're having their programming meetings, but what they're doing is reviewing, you know, sizzle reels and, uh, and uh, proof of concept uh, reels and pitches that the producers now are, are creating and sending, um, sending to the networks for them to, to pick and choose and decide which ones they want to go further, further with. So it's kind of flipped. I mean, we're we're paying 12 people to do, really, the development for the networks. That's a full-time uh, job. Shows. Mm -hmm. It's a full-time job. Yeah, yeah, and that didn't that didn't exist uh, 20 years ago. I mean, again, it was 10 years in before we really even got got serious about it, and now it's our stock and trade. So we'll have 50 items, you know, incubating and development. Um, that you know are all kind of rising to the top that we're pitching out to the networks, and then um, we'll have ten to twelve network-funded projects in another column, if you will, and those would be uh, proof of concepts that the network will fund, uh, their pilots that the network will fund, um, and that's you know the category of hopefully you know some of those or maybe half of them will then. Uh, move on and be ordered to series. 
So, so the process is a lot longer now as well. I mean, it, you know, you can be working on uh, a show for two years before you finally get the green light uh, on it. And sometimes they'll do multiple pilots. Uh, we have a show on DIY um, that we did four pilots on before they placed, finally placed an order. So they liked the idea but didn't like the approach? Is yep. that why it took four yeah. times? Yeah, and I mean, sometimes it was, you know, a completely different uh, approach to even the subject of uh, what somebody might be doing or how they do it or who they team them up with and that, that sort of thing. So, And for us, you know, they're fully funded. So, I mean, they, we're presenting them budgets on what we need um, to do the pilots, and they're, they're paying for those. Um, and... Um, you know, and so we just work our way through that process. But some of it gets a little silly, you know, for television that it's two years of development. You know, mm -hmm. you know when you know when we live through the days uh, where you know you, you couldn't get it on the air fast enough. So. Right, mm -hmm. that's pretty wild. So yeah. how many how many shows would you say? Well, how many shows are you actively producing right now that aren't in the development stage that are actually like just? Well, we have 12, 12 series, 13, 13 series we're doing now. And your most popular right now would be? Um, Fixer Upper. Well, you just got an Emmy nomination. Yeah, for, for that. Fixer. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's thank funny. you. Thank you. Yes. It's funny. People, like my friends back home are saying, like, oh, you know, what are you doing for this? And I'm like, oh, I'm interning with High Noon. They're like, oh, what's that? I'm like, you ever hear a Fixer Upper? They're like, I love that show. Oh, yeah. Everyone loves that show. Yeah. Everyone, everyone wants to talk about that. They want to talk about Cake Boss. Mm -hmm. Those are like mm -hmm. the two big ones everyone keeps telling me about. Yeah, yeah, they're... they're they're our biggest show. And Fixer Upper wasn't a slam dunk. I mean, we pitched three different concepts before we finally got this concept. We were pitching this third concept to the network, but not with Chip and Joe, about um, the, the worst house on the block, you know, buying the worst house on the block and fixing that up and knowing that the neighborhood would help sell and, you know, escalate the, the price that you would get. And on the, the third attempt... I think it was the network that said, well, why don't we have Chip and Joe do that? And that's how that concept came together. You know? and, and that's when we then went on to test it in a pilot. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it's like any other show. I mean, we made the first season, and you just kind of offer it up to the viewing audience. You know, you never know what's going mm -hmm. to go and what's not going to go. And, uh, and that thing just took off because uh, of the chemistry, I think, of those two. So you also have... Um, full-time DPs yeah. mm -hmm. on staff. Mm -hmm. how did, why did you decide to do that, and how does that actually work? Do they work on every pilot? I mean, how Yeah, they... they work on anything that's important. Uh, we bring them in. So, you know, the early days, you know, my partners were all shooting. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that was just what we were known for was our photography. Uh, we, we took that uh, really seriously, and it was the photography to reinforce the storytelling uh, and stuff. So, it, you know, it it was only a couple of years in that uh, we knew we wanted to, um, you know, expand and, and add another photographer or two because we were doing those magazine shows where, you know, you get on a plane for a week, you'd shoot in, you know, whatever town and come back with a story. And we knew we wanted folks with a news background that understood story and, and could um, uh, deliver that. Michael Flick was our first one. He just came out of CU, out of the film program at CU. And he met with my partners, um, Sonny and Chris, and they said, you know, you've got real potential and stuff, but you need, to, you need to go spend some time in a newsroom. And he took that to heart and went to Wichita, Kansas, and worked uh, at a TV station for two years and then sent his reel in. And I was like, 
Had you oh, forgotten wow. about him? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> although he probably stayed in touch with uh, probably Chris. And, um, and sure enough, it was like, well, look at this. I mean, you know, he's, he's really picked up the lighting and the stories are solid. We know it's going to be efficient. And so um, he was our first one that we hired. And I bet that was... 16 years ago. I mean, he's been with us forever. And then um, a year or two later, uh, we uh, hired Andy, um, who was oddly enough from Kansas as well, but he then moved to Channel 7 here uh, and was working in their, their, their newsroom as a photographer. So um, that helped us in the magazine um, phase of the company, but then as we uh, morphed into, you know, phase two of the company, uh, they really dug in uh, to learn their craft as far as uh, not just story, not just photography, but just, you know, the world of DP and lighting, and uh, and um, they've been involved in a lot of the major shoots. I mean, even the shiny floor stuff we'd be doing in Los Angeles and the house shows, um, um, they would be a part of that, uh, um, oftentimes the DP of uh, that. Um, in the last couple of years, uh, they're involved in the startup of, uh, of a lot of shows, um, but they're doing all the pilot work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they so are, so are they setting the standard for what they want the show yep. to look like for the rest of the yep. time? Yep, yeah. And then even when it goes to series, they're going to be in whatever town that is, with whatever crew that is for a week or two, really kind of dialing in the, the, the look and feel of... Uh, of the show and how that's going to be unique from uh, you know uh, the different shows because they can't all look the same you know mm-hmm. you don't want them all to be copycats of the same thing so so they've really um, they've really uh, developed uh, you know as as DPs and having the news background these guys are all about story I mean they have an amazing producer sense uh, and I think they're probably quite strong producers as well but that's uh, um, everybody's pretty attuned to story, and our DPs are, you know, at the top of the list. I mean, they're real collaborators on story with the uh, producers and directors. The talent, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the last pilot, the Animal Planet pilot that I got mm-hmm. to hang out with, Andy was talking to talent the entire time and, and really making him feel comfortable about making decisions or, not, not, or just, just winging it. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. saying, like, listen, you do not have to control yourself for this. I want you to do what comes naturally. I mm-hmm. will capture it. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. If I need another take, I'll tell you. For now, forget I'm here. Like, he was really yes. actively engaged yes. just as much as the producer was. Yes, and wasn't stepping on the producer or the director's no. toes. It's I mean, pretty remarkable to see pretty that. Pretty collaborative. Uh, our folks don't have a lot of turf. I mean, it's all about... You know, we got this crack at doing this pilot or doing this proof of concept. How do we make it the best? You know, mm-hmm. we're trying to sell a show here. So, uh, you know, whatever the best brains are that can, can help us do that, let's collaborate and let's, uh, let's, let's do that. It's been pretty cool seeing how the personalities of the talent determine kind of how the story goes, too. Um, I've been working on um, the Fords. Oh, good. And... Great. And just seeing how like their brains work mm-hmm. and their relationship as brother and sister, mm-hmm. it, it sort of like determines what you're going to put in the show because their banter and what they have to say about the project itself kind of guides where everything's going. So it's not necessarily about it's like a subtle difference. It's not just we're renovating this house and let's right. show how we're doing. It's like no, right. what is Leanne interested in? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. more than mm-hmm. Steve. Okay, and how can we emphasize that for this particular shot or this particular scene? Well, and that's part of the promise of the show. If you think of a network like Home and Garden, uh, the garden is gone for the most part. They're, they don't mm-hmm. do many garden shows, so it's all home. And uh, and you know, so your show has to have a pretty specific point of view because as soon as you start straying a little bit then you start bumping into another show that they have uh, uh, and stuff and they don't want you on that turf you know they want each of these to be uh, be unique shows so um, as we're pitching that going in you know we're kind of pitching who these people are and what what their take is and then we we try to be uh, be true to that so I mean we even do it on like the graphics and uh, you know, we do all of our graphics in-house, all the 3D stuff that we do. And, you know, the mortal sin is that Good Bones and Flipper Flop Vegas are looking like um, the graphics that we're doing in Fixer Upper. You know, you don't want to do that. No. They are completely unique, and I'm always impressed at how uh, those folks can, uh, can do that, develop that. It's still 3D. Things still have to, you know, come apart and be uh, uh, built back together, but... You, you gotta keep it keep it unique, or it starts kind of ripping off another show. It's also pretty remarkable when I was uh, I actually got to sit in and watch some of the graphics work. How he was making a decision about how to present a banister based on where in the show they were going to be showing it, because if he showed one version of the banister, it would give away the reveal because they made a last minute change. Uh-huh. So we had to have a more basic. Um, version of it in the beginning of the show, so that he could they could tell the story. So even mm-hmm. even the graphics department is very aware. Oh yeah, of the story beats for the images that they're making. You think oh it's a little, it's a blueprint. So, no, uh-huh. no 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 no. Mm-hmm. If you give away this last minute change for this wall we're knocking down, mm-hmm. then you've given it away at the beginning. We have to make sure that that's progressive disclosure of information. Mm-hmm. And getting to see that, and also watching him take the photos, the set photos with the blueprints and then actually do it and then seeing the final product. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And moving cameras and light sources and textures and all that stuff that they can, uh, they can map, but they do, you know, like everybody else, you know, they're there to lift that story, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what can they do to that lifts and illustrates, you know, what we're trying to get done. So what's the, what's the most exciting part of the process for you? I mean, you're not really involved terribly in the nitty-gritty these days. Mm-hmm. So no. what, is, what, is, what keeps you coming to work? Um, I think it's uh, the fun of landing, landing the shows and getting them in the pipeline and getting uh, people uh, hired, uh, you know, and, and building the teams to, to, to uh, execute. And then uh, I just love seeing the cuts. Um, not, you know, not so much rough cuts, but I uh, love seeing the, the fine cuts and see how that uh, progresses. Um, you know, I've done a lot of the deals with the talent over the years, uh, and uh, I've always enjoyed that process uh, uh, as well. Um, so it's just, uh, it's just, you know, we've kind of shifted to running a company, uh, you know, in these later years as, you know, our, our succession team is uh, running more of the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So uh, passion projects. I noticed you have a picture of a ballerina. 
mm -hmm. on your wall. Can you tell me a little bit about your involvement with the... Yeah, I've been on the board of Colorado Ballet for 10 years, and I'm currently the co-chairman of the board. So um, our board's pretty involved. I mean, it's 45 people in the community, and, uh, you know, the, the managers of the ballet company, you know, report up to the up to the chairs of the of the board, and uh, it's a passion I've had ever since uh, since college uh, uh, for ballet. That's always spoken to me. I mean, it's the combination of the beauty of uh, the mu movement, but uh, that with uh, with uh, music. And um, my entrance to that has been through television and film. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I've gone to lots of live performances over the years and certainly attend everything we, we do, but I was always impressed with it, you know, in cinema. Um, I remember when I was at OU, Twyla Tharp did a piece with WNET in New York called Making Television Dance, and it was the, it was the very first portable um, video camera that, that could still go live that was of high quality um, uh, and and she was choreographing with that camera with the dancers and it was it was amazing um, and it really sparked an interest and a passion uh, in me and it was it was fun when I got my first job at Channel 9 I walked in the newsroom and that camera was sitting right there that, that same camera <laughs> that we ended up using for another probably eight years or so um, uh, you know and then you know the movies Red Shoes and all that was uh, was really uh, uh, profound to me, and then uh, I've been lucky to see you know so many different uh, performances over 40 years that uh, that that's something very close to me. So, so you don't I, have a dancing background. No, it's just you've just been fascinated it's, by the art. It's form. an art form. Yeah, yeah. So owning a television company, then we've been able to. Um, I mean, I know why the ballet has kept me around. I mean, for <laughs> 10 years we've done, you know, their commercials, and uh, um, and we're now in our third year of uh, uh, streaming uh, some of the productions, and I'm directing those. Those are six-camera live uh, uh, productions, and for me, you know, multi-camera and ballet, it's like, oh, my God. You know? So you're going all the way back to news directing. Mm -hmm. You're pulling that experience all the way up to what you really yeah. enjoy. Yeah. Yes. What's it like directing yes. a live show? Because the, these terms are so interchangeable. Mm -hmm. Producer, director, mm -hmm. um, writer. I mean, the fact mm -hmm. that a writer in here, I'd never, you know, I don't pick up a pen and right. write a script. I yeah. mean, it's, um, yeah. and I've, I've noticed that, uh, I mean, is it as simple? Like, the only time I've seen something directed live mm -hmm. is I got to sit in the booth at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia mm. during a Phillies game and watch. Oh. Someone actually point and and yelling yeah. at people yeah. to get a shot of this, get a shot yeah. of that, play mm -hmm. that cue. You're on. Mm -hmm. Hey, let's get a zoom here. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what it is, and it's like a bicycle. It's a rhythm. You just uh, you just roll right into that that rhythm, and uh, it's it's a rhythm, but it's also so many of your answers are on the speakers. You know. You got to be talking. People are talking to you, but you got to stay tied into the audio. The audio has all of your answers, whether it's ballet and it's music, you know, that you're cutting to. Or I just did a freelance gig in um, uh, up in Vermont for a week. It was multi-camera um, shoot, and it had roll-ins. It had lots of monitors we were feeding and sound on tapes and everything and and it's scripted you know and so you're working you know the 
the, the monitor wall and you're also working a script and you've got your cadence going and you're trying to get every single one of those cuts where they're supposed to be and the graphic changes where they're supposed to be and the tape rolls where they're supposed to be and it's uh, it's it's pretty fun. I mean it's you get through three or four days of that and and nail it, you know, you got a pretty good pretty good feeling. Do you get practice runs on these things or like yeah, how much you, research do you do before doing a directing a live stream? Well, I probably did the blocking. So, you know, the first day you're out on set and you're setting all the positions with the lighting people and the clients and everything and, and uh, with a stand and I get to bring my stage manager from Denver with me. So that's that's great. Nice. I've got control of the control room and she's got control of the stage uh, and the crew out there and of course they had adored her. Um, but your first day is, you know, all the blocking. I mean, it's taken them weeks to get the set put up, and the, you know, all, all the lighting's moving. Everything's LED uh, these days. But the first day, you set your positions. You know, it's seven different positions, and then uh, the next day, um, you know, you start shooting. Um, but you know, there's always kind of a dry run right before you you do a segment uh, and stuff, and then hopefully you can get it in one or two takes. Particularly if you have talent that can deliver it in one or two takes, mm -hmm. uh, you and the crew and the jib and everything else has to has to hit it hit it good uh, with that. And you shoot it in some kind of logical sequence uh, where you're not you know dragging cameras all over the place uh, and everything. I mean, you're working your way through the set, you know. And, where you end uh, one day is usually where you pick up the next day and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty fun. Nice. Yeah, and it's complicated. And it, I'm sure. You, you walk in anxious, <laughs> and then you nail it, and it's like, oh yeah, okay. So I've done this for 40 years. So, so you never you never get rid of that those butterflies, no, that no, anxiety. No, and I see it in the ball and ballet as well. You know, the artistic director. You know, as we're going through dress rehearsal and all that, you know, they're just kind of on edge and stuff. And yet, you know, year after year, production after production, they just nail it, you know. And the orchestra conductor, you know, everybody's got the jitters, and yet they, they, they nail it. And then the, the fun of ballet is, you know, I mean, Nutcracker will do 24 productions of that, so that's a pretty long haul over six weeks. But most of the productions are going to be two weekends or three weekends. So we'll do eight, nine, eleven, maybe twelve uh, uh, performances of a of a production, and it's it's really gratifying to go to opening night and then go to closing night and just see see how everything's evolved, how it's tightened down, how the orchestra is tightened down. Um, you know, there's always kind of an A, B, and C cast, so there's some rotation of principles and oh, things yeah. like that. And um, it's it's fun to fun to see that progression. But they have the same jitters, you know. We all do walking in of, you know, you, you do all your prep. You know, you got to prep. If you don't prep, the crew starts directing <laughs> the show. So um, you know, and it's there's always that thing of will I pull it off? And then it's it's very gratifying when you do. Have you ever wanted to or attempted to produce mm -hmm. any narrative films? Have you done any of that? I, I mean, I have doing, you know, 12, 13 years of commercial work. Um, you know, that, that, that kind of took the whole spectrum of, you know, commercials, corporate videos. I mean, some of this is religious stuff that comes in. I mean, whatever the client comes in. And so um, I've gotten some pretty good opportunities to cast and work with actors on some dramatic scenes or a dramatic thing, whatever that thing might be, a 20-minute uh, uh, piece, uh, 
but never uh, you know a full length movie. I mean, we've done documentaries, and right, that was of course. What, uh, my background was in, in in school and stuff, but no, no. I, I mean, I think it would be be wonderful, but it's a different world at a different pace, you know. We're, different risk. Yeah, and we do TV. I mean, it's just uh, it's just boom, 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 uh, and the notion of spending four years on one film is um, you know a little mind-boggling. Uh, would you me. get bored with that? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. So you, you, I need, mean, you I, need to be I, juggling things. Yeah, so. I mean, it's just, I mean, right. I mean, the, the deal wasn't to do 5,700 television shows in 20 years, but that's what we ended up doing because mm -hmm. the phone would ring and we're always like, if you say no, they'll never call back again. So, um, you know, we were always, even at Channel 9, we always had five, six uh, shows in production at a time. Not, not that we ever had to, but that's just what... What we did, you know, mm -hmm. it was that energy, that was that vitality of, uh, of going from one thing to to the next. You know. Do you have a favorite show you've worked on? Um, I've always been fond of Unwrapped. I mean, we just had. I mean, I directed all those wraparounds on Unwrapped for all those years, and that was just a sweet show on you know ten different levels, and uh, I, I had a lot of pride, you know, in crafting that and uh, and everything. We had a. Uh, the set eventually uh, um, filled the biggest stage in town, was a 360 degree set. And, you know, I could do 13 episodes of wraparounds in three days, all shot out of sequence. Wow. Uh, um, all, it's out of sequence, but it's also uh, based on wardrobe changes and all that kind of stuff. And those were big and complicated, and we had a, a, a great crew, and Mark Summers was always a a delight, you know, as much a friend as a talent, you know, so mm -hmm. that, that's the one that's always stuck with me. Mm -hmm. If you had to give advice, and I'm sure you get this question all the time because you're a successful business owner, you've done countless hours of programming, you've managed to, you know, keep up with the times, if mm -hmm. not even stay ahead of them. Um, what do you recommend for someone, you know, like me or any other kind of student who wants to get into this kind of programming? What's what's the best? Uh... Um, well, to have fun, but take it seriously. I mean, this is your career, your craft. Um, you know, be tenacious about it. Um, uh, marry somebody that uh, understands that you're not going to be home often, that you're never going to have banker's hours, it's never ever going to happen, that you're going to constantly call and say, well, I need two more hours, and it'll be five more hours. I mean, you got to, it's what you sign up for. There's there's no shortcuts with production. You just, uh, you got to go and you get one crack at it, and you, you got to do uh, the best you can. Um, the other part is, you know, in the early jobs that you, you, you get, um, they're going to be entry level. Typically, if it's of any big scale uh, operation, I mean, there's a lot of one and two person things out there, but typically you're going to go into entry level work. And um, you're going to have to enterprise your way out of that inter entry level work to the next tier um, and stuff. Um, and what that requires is to do the most amazing job you can do with a job you were hired to do. But at the end of the day, they don't make you leave. I mean, you can hang out. And if you're interested in edit editing, make friends with an editor. Start hanging out with them. If you're mm -hmm. interested in photography, find out who the photographer is that you respect. Um, and, and start hanging out with them. 
spend time with them, pick their brains, find out how, how they did it, find out what their sensitivities are. The mortal sin is to you know, start down that road and then not follow through. I mean, you've got to do what you say you're going to do. If you tell me you're going to come out on Saturday and um, help on this shoot, you got to be there Saturday and help with that shoot. You don't have it. Uh, there's no out. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no excuses. It's no sick uh, day. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, and get there early. You know, that's a that shows a lot. You know, uh, be attentive. Don't be the one that's sitting on the apple box. You know, be on your feet uh, and stuff. Because all those people that are around you, there's no trade school for this. They were all brought up by mentors. I mean, it's a whole industry of mentors. Um, I had my mentors that brought me up. I brought plenty, plenty of people uh, up behind me. But they were all people that were serious about what they wanted to do. You know, mm-hmm. they weren't jerks either. I mean, they were just nice people. We're not curing cancer for God's sake. We're making entertainment. So, mm-hmm. you, so don't you know? Get over yourself. But you got to do what you say you're going to do, and you got to enterprise it. But you're surrounded by people that had to do the same thing. There, there are no shortcuts. Mm-hmm. You know. But it's awesome. It is awesome. You meet the most amazing people. You get to go to the most amazing places, things, events. You're backstage at all sorts of things that just blow your mind. Oftentimes, you've got to stop for a moment and just take it in. Like, how did I get this lucky? Awesome. So where can people find out about High Noon? Is it just the website? Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Highnoontv.com? Yeah, and it's got the reel and all that kind of stuff as well. But, yeah, get that, you know, find that first job or two, you know, that really, uh, really excites you and surround yourself with smart people and learn learn from them all, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down, Duke. I really appreciate it. You bet. You bet. It was a pleasure. Excellent. All right. Great. Thanks again for tuning in. That was Duke Hartman with High Noon Entertainment. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review if you choose. Next time, we're going to have Shah Shafiani, an Iranian filmmaker, talking about his creative development. Uh, Really fascinating discussion. I can't wait to throw that up on the Internet. So we'll see you next time.